Today we're reading Mark 4, verses 1 to 11. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? For she has done a beautiful thing for me. To me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he saw an opportunity to betray him. That is the word of God. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Can you join me in a word of prayer? Uh, Father God, we just thank you for this time, Lord. We just pray for these next few moments, so God, that you will just move in a special way, Lord. God, I just submit myself before you that I will just uh, completely get out of the way. And Lord, that you will be seen. I will not be seen, God. Lord, I love you and I praise you. I give you all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. It is in Jesus' mighty name I pray. Amen. Amen. So uh, we are uh, continuing our sermon series on encounters with Jesus. And uh, we are, uh, as you uh, read in Mark chapter 14, and we're going to be looking at those first 11 verses uh, this morning. And I'm going to set up the sermon this way. So... Um, a couple of weeks ago, I, was a, I bumped into one of my high school friends at one of the coffee shops in this neighborhood, and uh, we were just catching up, just talking about how life's going, and um, he was just sharing with me that his wife uh, started this uh, side hustle job, and basically he was telling me that what she started to do was she started to buy vintage clothes online, and so what she does is that she would go to uh, state uh, to, to garage sales and to, um, and, and to state sales and go to vintage stores and to thrift stores. And she um, has this tremendous knowledge about just certain vintage designs, certain vintage things that are just out there and what to look for, what is valuable, what is just really trending in fashion. And uh, she would go and she would buy these dresses and these blouses and these clothes from the 1930s all the way to the 1960s. And what she would do is she would clean it up and then she would go and she would repair them. And so he was telling me that, you know, one day she brought home this brown um, wool ladies business suit. And he was going, he was also telling me that this particular brown wool uh, ladies business suit was just very, very ugly. And he was like, you know what, honestly, who wants an 80-year-old brown business suit, right, that smells like mothballs, 
Okay, like we don't want that. He, like even though he could not see it, but his wife knew that this particular business suit was from a well-known designer from the 1930s. And so his wife spots the business suit, buys it for 40 bucks. She cleans it up and then she uh, lists it online. And one week later, she sells it to a clothing collector in Austin, Texas for, guess how much? $1,400, right? 1,400 bucks for this. And he couldn't believe it. He's like, we're just going to retire. We're going to quit my job. And you're just going to do this, okay, for the rest of our lives. And so I say all that to say this. I say all that to say this. Here's the difference between my friend and that buyer from Austin. My friend looked at that suit and he saw no beauty in it. To him, it had no intrinsic value, right? It it had nothing to offer him. It didn't uh, capture his affections or anything like that. To him, this brown, it was this big brown blob of just wool yarn. That's what it was for him. But to this buyer, it was beautiful. It captured their heart. It it captured their affection. And because they knew the beauty and the worth of this particular item, and because they knew the beauty and the worth of this particular item, they were willing to just pour out great resources for it. They treasured it, and so they gave up a great treasure for it. They treasured it, so they gave up a great treasure for it. And in today's text, we are going to meet this woman who, when other people miss the beauty and the worth of Jesus Christ, she rightly treasured him. And she pours out this extravagant worship toward him. And Jesus in this text actually celebrates and lifts up this woman as a role model for all of us, right? The next generation onward. In fact, I don't know if you caught it, right, when Christine read that earlier, but but did you know that in today's sermon is actually a fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus gave right in this passage, In in verse 9, it reads like this, Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in all the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And that's what we're doing today. That is what we are doing today. On the other side of the world, 2,000 years later, we are retelling what this woman did in memory of her. And so the question that this, that this woman in this text is going to confront us today, Edge City Church, is this. How do we value Jesus? How do we view him? What is Jesus worth to us? To uh, set up uh, the, the setting here in these 11 uh, verses, uh, true to form of the gospel writer Mark, um, Mark, you see, particularly likes to structure his passages in what we call the the Markin sandwich. And so it's sort of like this A-B-A structure, right? Like a sandwich. You got the the buns and you got the meat right in the middle. And so in today's text, we're going to be looking at the the first two verses and then the last two verses. 
that is going to serve as like this frame in and demonstrate the responses of people who absolutely missed the beauty and the worth of Jesus. And on top of that, the A1 and the A2 really are going to serve as an example on how we too also can miss Jesus as well. And the seven verses highlighting this right and model response to this true beauty and worth of Jesus that we are going to learn from this woman in this text. And so here we're going to go. We're just going to dive right in. We're going to kind of outline it with our time and with our passage today. We're going to kind of hit the buns first, A1 and A2. And then we're going to go and see these two groups of people who miss the beauty and the worth of Jesus. And then we're going to land the plane. We're going to go right into the meat of it. And we're going to be looking at this dear woman who pours out her all before the feet of Jesus. And so the title of this message is just the, the woman with the alabaster box. But, you know, it was just, just too many words to put, you know, the scribes and the chief priests and Judas. So I just kind of kept it simple with her. And we talked about the chief priests before. But we're just going to keep, but we're going to be looking at those three scenes here today, okay? And so we're going to kind of summarize the responses of all of these people. Okay, so here's the first one. We're going to be looking at this group of people. And they, they are a group of people that saw Jesus as threatening. They saw Jesus as threatening. So let's get into verse one. It says this, it was now two days before the Passover and the feast of the unleavened bread and the chief priests and the scribes were uh, seeking how to arrest him, that's Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Okay, so real quick, I don't know if, um, you know, like, I, I, like just to focus on the response here, the scribes and the chief priests here as we look at this, I also want, I just want us to kind of notice um, the setting here as well as we read this, because the setting is not insignificant here. Okay, um, it says here, it was right before the Passover feast and the unleavened bread, of the unleavened bread. And so real quick. Just really quickly, this was an annual celebration, the Passover, right? When God liberated the Jewish people in the Old Testament out of slavery from Egypt just generations before. And if you remember, God has sent a plague over Egypt. And the firstborn of every family was going to die. But he told the people of God to sacrifice a lamb that is without blemish and put the blood over your, uh, your doorpost, and when that curse comes, what's going to happen is that curse is going to just pass over your house. And guess what? That happened. That actually happened. The people of God were just spared, and they were liberated out of their slavery. And so the timing is, right now, annually, the people of God would just recognize God's work at the Passover, and this is an annual celebration. And so uh, the week that the people of God would celebrate Passover is also going to be, be the week that Jesus comes and Jesus dies. So Jesus has just come into Jerusalem from Galilee, and he is never going to go back to Galilee again. He knows that he's coming to be the true Passover lamb. During the Passover week, Jesus is that true Passover lamb, and he is going to be sacrificed 
And the Jewish Passover is this, this liberation of slavery, right? Where they, we're going to see it symbolically, but just be a signpost uh, of, uh, of just pointing to this one moment here. The, this was but a pregame to the final act. That Jesus Christ, the once and for all sacrificial lamb, he would come and he would liberate us from our ultimate slavery of death and hell once and for all. And so Jesus comes and he, he is the better um, uh, Passover lamb. He is the true and better liberation. He is our one true eternal salvation. And we can just see God's plan that is unfolding right here. And here's what I especially want us to kind of draw our attention to in today's sermon. I want to draw your attention to the response of the chief priests and the scribes here, right? Because it says here in verse 1, it says that these guys are like ninjas, okay? They are like seeking to arrest him uh, by stealth, meaning they are going to kill him. And so you have to ask the question, well, why, why does these guys, why are these guys so hot and bothered by this? Right? You know what? They're, they're like Med fans and Jet fans who are just looking at their championship case, right? They're just so hot and bothered. Okay, yeah, that's boo. Sorry, no offense, Med fans and, and Jet fans. I'm a Knicks fan, so I shouldn't talk. I have, we have no championship in my case right there. But these guys are angry. These guys are upset. These guys are hostile. These guys are just very, very mad. Well, the, the, the quickest way to kind of sum it up for these guys is that is that, that these religious leaders, they were felt threatened by Jesus. You see, they viewed Jesus Christ as a threat. Since Jesus stepped onto the scene, the, the religious establishment has felt threatened by him. And their intent toward Jesus is to just wipe him out. Their intent is just to kill him. It actually starts to appear back in Mark chapter 3, where Jesus goes and he heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath day. And these religious guys, they get so hot and bothered by this, and they go and they confront Jesus. And Jesus actually challenges them of their understanding of God's laws and of the Sabbath, and these guys did not like it at all. And so it says in verse uh, chapter 3, verse 6 over here, it says that they immediately held counsel with the Herodians, seeking how to destroy Jesus. And so from that point on, for the next 11 chapters in Mark's gospel, what we see is that there is a group of religious leaders who grow increasingly hostile leading up to that final week. Why? Because they saw Jesus as a threat. Jesus is a threat to their leadership. Jesus is a threat to their power. Jesus is a threat to their authority. He is a threat to their present context. And right now, he is a threat to their wealth. He is a threat to their finances. He is a threat. And you see, the Passover festival was the largest event of the year in Jerusalem, especially in the temple right there, where hundreds, maybe up to upwards, about a million people would come to the temple during the festival to make a sacrifice and to celebrate. And these scribes and these chief priests who ran the temple 
right, had largely compromised that their ministry and they would leverage their temple ministry for personal financial gain. And the whole thing had come as, you know what it became? It became an economic scam. Just like modern day televangelists who goes on and sells anointed oils and prayer scarves for $99.99, telling you, telling you that you can unlock your double blessings, right? If you would just give to my ministry. Finn Varghese, WorldWideMinistry.com. They're making money off of this ministry. It is a scam. And Jesus, just days earlier, he calls them out. Jesus goes and he flips over the tables and he says, this is not okay. Okay, this is not what we are here for. And Jesus cleanses the temple in this dramatic and passionate scene there. And now these are the leaders of the temple. You see, these were the leaders who were just confronted. These were the leaders who, were, who had just been embarrassed. These were the leaders who were just called out. And they're going to just try to make the stop to this troublemaker, right, once and for all. Why? Because they viewed Jesus as a threat. A threat to their authority, a threat to their power and prestige, a threat to their wealth, a, tr- a threat to their little comfortable lives and their religious games that they played in the temple, a threat to their control. And because of that, they plot to kill Jesus. They want to get rid of him. They want to get past Jesus as quick as they can so that they can get back to their little uncomfortable lives the way that it was. Now here's where I think Edge City Church that we need to kind of slow down and we need to ask this question. If the warning of the scribes and the priests isn't maybe in some parts perhaps a warning for us, how, how do like, how can we see Jesus as a threat? Well, first, I think we can see Jesus as a threat by the obvious application here for the unbeliever, okay? That I would say, like, you know, if I could just humbly submit this to you today. I have found, right, oftentimes that those people that reject Christ, saying that the Bible is not reliable, saying that, you know, the Christian message is nothing more than a myth. Oftentimes, I have found that they have more personal reasons behind the rejection. And quite often, it's because they view Jesus Christ as a threat. He is a threat to their lifestyle. He is a threat to their morality. He is a threat to their freedom. He is a threat to their money. He is a threat to their comfort, and he is a threat to their reputation. I mean, anyone anyone can go online, and you can find a blog post filled with reasons not to believe in Jesus, right? To unvalidate the claims of the Bible. But I would propose to you that, at least in our culture, though, that Jesus is most often rejected not on the basis of evidence, but on the personal threat that he imposes 
on real lives. And like these religious leaders, people are seeking to crucify Jesus from their lives by discrediting Jesus, proving the irrelevance so that they could just go on to be the Lord and the leaders of their own life. And I have to say this, if that is you here, those of you watching online right now who is a non-believer, I want to say to you, man, I am praying Right now, I'm praying that the word of God would just pierce your heart today. And I am praying that Jesus Christ, would, you would see Jesus, you would see his beauty right now, and you would see the worth of Jesus right now. But more than just the application for the non-believer, I think there's an, applica- an application for professing believers as well. So let me say it like this. Like, there's a very possible, you know, way to view Jesus as a convenient and helpful person for our salvation. But to keep him at arm's length from our everyday lives. Because we find Jesus Christ to be a threat to things that we do not actually want to give up. Like the fear is that if you get too into this Jesus guy, you may end up like one of those really committed Christians that are, well, you know, a bit extreme, right? Like you feel threatened that if you let Jesus in all the way, that you might actually start giving 10% of your income to the local church. You might actually give up some habits that you actually really enjoy and you do not want to give up. He could interrupt your dreams and the dreams that you have for your children, that they may actually waste their lives, waste their careers by going into vocational ministry. Or heaven forbid, the the foreign mission field. Like, yikes. You could view Jesus Christ as a threat. I'll never forget um, many, 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 many years ago, I was uh, pursuing a degree in the medical field. And uh, mind you, at the same time, I was serving as a volunteer youth pastor at my, pre- my old church. And so I-, I went to a family event and I was, you know, talking to one of the older professing Christians uh, in-, in the upstream of my family. And I'll never forget this. He asked me, he said, so what are you going to do when you graduate? Like, what hospital do you want to work? Where do you want to, which direction? And I, and I said to him, well, you know what? I'm going to go back from my higher education in my theological fields. And I'm going to take a one-year, pre- uh, a one-year pastoral residency at a church in the city. And then I'm going to start a church on Long Island. And I'll never forget his reaction. He sort of frowned, he sort of frowned at me. And he looked at me and he said, you shouldn't get too carried away with that stuff. There's really a lot of good opportunities for you after you finish this. Listen, how you view Jesus will determine how you respond to him. If you view Jesus as a threat, you will keep Jesus at arm's length. You will ride him off. You will shield your little um, idols and your little comforts, and you will stiff arm the person, the very source of all real joy 
and the giver of life. Oh, would we see Jesus Christ today? Right? Will we see him today that he is a threat to, yes, so many of our lives? He is, but that which he takes, he will give back 10,000 folds. Yes, Jesus, he will mess with your money. Yes, he will mess with your time. Yes, he will mess with the vision that you have for your life. But his agenda, he's explicit about his agenda though. He says, my agenda is that you have life and you have it to the fullest, right? Life in both this life and the life to come. So yes, Jesus Christ is a threat, but a threat in the best possible way. He, he threatens to take away all the fool's gold that we used to cherish and that we used to celebrate. And he replaces that with a life of actual substance, a life of treasure and a life of eternal joy. So the first group of people, they view Jesus Christ as a threat, and that is these religious leaders. And I, th and I think they serve as a warning for us if we think that Jesus Christ is also a threat. But now we're going to jump into the last two verses, okay? So we're going to see a picture of another man, and uh, this man viewed Jesus as useful. He viewed Jesus as useful. That's the second view uh, that we're going to consider today. And so how do we respond when we view Jesus as useful? Verse 10, it reads like this. Then Judas Iscariot, right? There's our guy right there, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Right, what, a, what a scene we have here. This is Judas Iscariot. This is one of Jesus's 10 closest supposed friends, right, who's been with Jesus since the very beginning, who sells Jesus out to those that view Jesus as a threat, and he joins this plot to kill him. In Matthew's gospel, it actually tells us the amount of money that it was involved in this deal. Uh, and the amount of money was 30 pieces of silver. And so in, in modern equivalent, 30 pieces of silver would be 600 bucks. Okay, so it's hard to kind of read that. It's hard to kind of think about that, right? $600? Like Judas has been with Jesus, y'all. Judas has heard Jesus's sermons. He has seen Jesus's miracles. He's experienced his life. He's experienced his love. And he's been given the privilege of all privileges. And he sells Jesus out for 600 bucks. Just a few verses down the page, we'll see that Judas Iscariot actually executes his plan here. And Judas is someone who finds Jesus as useful. So for Judas, you know, he's never really more than, for him, like a, this utilitarian benefit. That word utilitarian, actions that are useful for the benefit of the majority. Judas didn't find Jesus 
to be glorious. He did not find Jesus to be beautiful. He did not find Jesus to be worthy. He found Jesus to be useful. See, Judas was the treasurer, right, for Jesus' small itinerant preaching ministry. And he carried the money bag uh, for the team of the 12. And what and like what these little dollars that came into the ministry, Judas most likely was padding his own pockets from the collection. And so Judas was, he was a swindler, right? That's who he was. Judas didn't use his gifts to serve Jesus. Judas used Jesus to serve his ambitions. Judas was never in it for Jesus. Never in it for Jesus. Never in it for Jesus' fame, for Jesus' glory, for Jesus' kingdom. Judas was in it for Judas. And I think, man, that could be a warning for us as well. Because Judas forces all of us, right? Every one of us to ask this question. Do you view Jesus as simply useful? Are you, are you about the Jesus thing for Jesus or just what you can get out of it. How you view Jesus determines how you're going to respond to him. Think of it like this, okay? So I have a very useful SUV, but, but it's, it's nothing more than just useful for me. I have a five-year-old uh, Honda CRV. It has about 40,000 miles on it. It gets me from A to B, uh, but because it is useful, <laughs> I am not scared to get it dirty. Like, I, I, I don't lose sleep if my kids spill something in the back seat. I don't care. If a friend borrows it, it's all good. Because it's not beautiful to me. It is just useful. It's utilitarian. In fact, if you offered me, I don't know, $14,000 for it, I would give it to you over lunch today, right? Like, because I would welcome the upgrade on it, right? I would sell my Honda in a minute, but my children, they're not just useful to me. In fact, when they were babies, you know, they were not really helpful to me. There's not a lot of utilitarian purposes when they are that age, right? But they are intrinsically beautiful to me because of who they are, right? They're my kids, they're my family. I would never sell them to anyone in this world for all of the money in this world. And for some, Jesus is more like my SUV. He's useful to serve their needs. For some, Jesus is more than family. He is their everything. And if Jesus is only useful to you, if he is not beautiful, you will sell him out when it is convenient. You will sell him out to compromise for a raise. You will sell him out for a one night stand. You will sell him out for 30 minutes on a website. You will sell him out in his honor, when it is no longer fun and convenient to be a follower of Jesus anymore. Now, to be clear, right? Like, Jesus does give us amazing gifts to his children. The gifts that he gives, forgiveness, 
adoption, a spiritual family called the church, forgiveness of sins, eternal life. But the intent of all of his good gifts is that we would glorify and adore not the gift, but the gift giver. That we would treasure not just the little gifts, but the gift giver himself. And so I need to ask you today, what do you love more? Do you love Jesus or do you love the gifts more? Do you behold Jesus? Do you adore him? Do you worship him? Do you glorify him? Or do you just find Jesus as useful to a life that is just centered around yourself? And that's the warning that Judas gives us here. So Mark uses here these two, right, sort of disappointing, very disappointing responses to Jesus to kind of frame the scene here that he actually wants to highlight for us. The highlight, right? It's a comparison and a contrast that we see here to really highlight the brightness and the beauty of this woman. See, this woman, she doesn't find Jesus as threatening. You see, this woman doesn't find Jesus as useful. She actually adores Jesus. She finds Jesus to be glorious. She finds Jesus to be beautiful. Jesus, he is her everything. And she has a lot to teach us about how we too should respond when we actually start to view Jesus as beautiful. So that's the third uh, perspective here. Let's look at it. Uh, we're going to close right after this point here. When we start to, we're going to start to see Jesus as beautiful. When we start to see Jesus as beautiful. So let's pick it up in verse 3 here. It says this. That while Jesus was in Bethany, right, that's, um, that's Jesus at Bethany. It's a, it's a little bedroom community in Jerusalem, which is two miles away. It reads, in the house of Simon the leper. Now, real quick, it says, it says Simon the leper here probably had been a leper, but um, is no longer a leper at this point. Um, because then he wouldn't be having a dinner party, right? And so uh, scholars believe that he was actually healed here right before by Jesus. And so um, Jesus is at his house here, okay? So let's read this. As he was reclining uh, a table at a table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. But what a scene here. Do you see the contrast of what we just saw with the religious leaders, of what we just saw, how they viewed Jesus, and what we just saw, how Judas viewed Jesus? And now we see this dear woman. Her response is a star contrast, and it is a beautiful scene of worship here. Real quick, um, the same scene is recorded also in John's Gospel. And we learn in John's gospel that this woman's name is Mary. Uh, scholars believe that this is the same Mary who is the sister of Martha, uh, the sister of Lazarus who was raised from the dead. It was actually their house that kind of uh, served as like an Airbnb for Jesus anytime he would come into Jerusalem. And, his, and the family would be his dear family friends. And so here they are hosting a dinner for Jesus. And he is in town for the Passover. Um, 
they may not know that this was his final uh, foray into Jerusalem. They have a, a number of guests that are here at this dinner table that night. And by the way, could you just like imagine the dinner party that's here? Like, talk about a talk about a guest list right here. You know, you're grabbing some Chipotle and you're hanging out with Lazarus. Okay, Lazarus, who was formerly known as dead. Here in this dinner party, you got Simon. Simon, who was formerly known as a leper. Here in this dinner party, you got Martha, Mary, and Jesus. All right, not a terrible guest list right there. But the star of this dinner party, other than Jesus, is really this woman, Mary. It is a scandalous scene says that she uh, breaks the alabaster flask of pure nard and pours it on Jesus's head. Now you hear the word nard, and it is like this awkward word, right, in the English language. Like, you know, it's, it's not like this attractive sounding word, nard. But uh, don't let the name fool you for what it was. Um, nard was a sweet smelling perfume uh, from a rare plant that would have been found in a region in India. And uh, commentators suggest that a flask of nard would be worth, check this out, a year's salary. And so it would have been served sort of as a, um, either a sort of a, a family heirloom that would have been passed and or sort of as like this um, insurance for the family to kind of provide for when they would just sell it in, in, in times of crisis, right? Like so whenever maybe a father passed away or a husband passed away or a loved one. But um, to put it into perspective, um, do you know the average median in household income is in New York? It's um, 70,000. That's the modern day equivalent that we see here. A year's worth of income is this alabaster box here, 70,000. Mary pours out $70,000 that she cannot get back on the head of Jesus. John chapter 12 says that she also poured it on Jesus' feet and, he, and she wiped it clean, her, his, uh, his feet clean with her hair. And so like when we see this, we're like, man, this... This should kind of strike us as extreme here because it is extreme. This is very extreme. $70,000. You know what she's doing? She's not only sacrificing the, the precious oil, right? $70,000 to Jesus. She's also entrusting her entire future to Jesus. She is emptying out her 401k for one act of worship to Jesus. Let's look at how the people respond to this, okay? Verse four, it says this. There were some there who said to themselves indignantly, why was uh, the ointment wasted like this? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denaries and given uh, to the poor. So, I mean, can I just be honest with you for a second? So for me, I thought, like for me, I don't disagree with these guys, right? Like, I, I, it's, it's really hard for me to judge these guys here. Like, uh, these people have a point here because this is a lot of money. 
Like she could have just at least, right, just kind of brought it to the finance committee and like, you know, got some wisdom, got some counsel, you know, just, you know, whether or not this was actually a good decision or not, because this would have really helped the benevolence fund, right? That, that's what they're saying here. And it's, it's not a terrible response, right? But let's look at Jesus's response here, okay? His response to their critical thoughts and how they are scolding this woman. So verse six, it says this. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can go do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, here it is, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Jesus celebrates her devotion. He celebrates her sacrifice. In fact, he calls what she did a beautiful thing. By the way, if Jesus was anyone other than God, like this would be kind of insulting, right? This would be kind of like an arrogant response here. Like the, the most insulting thing in the world, like I'm worth it. I'm worth that 70,000, right? Kind of like that song a couple of years ago, you know, uh, baby, I'm worth it. I'm worth it. Jesus is here saying, I am worth it. $70,000. No one else can ever say something like that. Like if you pour something on me that is worth $70,000 that you cannot get back, I will confirm to you that is a waste. Because <laughs> uh, I am not worth it. Baby, I ain't worth it. Dun, 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 dun. I am not worth that. Jesus is the only one who can respond that way. Ashley, what you did was beautiful because I'm worth it. I'm worth it. Because he is the only one that was actually worthy of everything that we could ever give him. Judas sold Jesus out for 600 bucks only because he only saw Jesus as useful. Mary pours out $70,000 at his feet because she sees Jesus as beautiful. Do you see Jesus' worth? Do you see Jesus' beauty? Do you see his glory? Do you see his goodness? Mary is a picture of this wholehearted devotion of our lives that Jesus is worthy of it. I want you to know that when you really see Jesus, when you really know Jesus, when you really behold Jesus, when you really experience Jesus, you will know that there is no price too high for Jesus, that there is no offering too great for Jesus, that there is no sacrifice too extreme to lay down at the feet of Jesus. Now, I know I might sound a bit extreme for some folks, right? Because you may just want to go to church a couple of times a month. 
You may, you just want to be a decent, reasonable person. You don't want to be too carried away with this Jesus thing. And that is a much easier path to go down. Because no one is going to scoff at you. They're going to say that you're a nice person. You can play religious games, not get too carried away. But when you give only when it is convenient, you will never know the joy of sacrifice. When you pray only when, it is, when you are desperate, you will never know the joy of fellowship and an intimacy with God. But the invitation with Jesus is to go all in. Go all in. Jesus says this, Matthew 16, verse 25 and 26. Jesus says this, For whoever shall save his life will lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my name and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. That's what this dear woman models for us. In her actions begs the question for each and every one of us, what is Jesus worth to you? Our actions follow our affections. What's Jesus worth to you? How do you view Jesus? As they invite the worship team to come forward, as they invite us to close our eyes and to bow our heads at this time, and I want to just end this with the gospel because I just want to remind us that all of our love and all of our devotion and all of our sacrifice, and all of our giving, and all of our worship can never, ever compare to the love and sacrifice that Jesus first gave us. Do you remember what Jesus has done for this woman, Mary? Jesus raised her brother from the dead. Remember, G remember she was about to bury her brother, and Jesus broke into her story ruined the funeral and brought her dead brother back to life. He turned that funeral into a dance party. And so why is she so lavishly worshipful? Why is she extravagantly sacrificial? Because she knows that she could never, ever pay back what Jesus has already given her. The great poet Edgar Allan Poe said it like this. He says this. He says, I was never really insane except upon occasions when my heart was touched. Right? There's something about when your heart is met with extraordinary love that will drive you to actions that will look insane 
And that is what happens to this woman. Her devotion might look insane, but it's because no one has ever moved in her heart like the love of Jesus has moved in her heart. How could she not respond with insane worship, with all that Jesus has done for her? And I want you to know that so too our lavish worship toward Jesus will come when we too come to terms with the insanely lavish kindness that Jesus has first shown us. Right, when we really think about it, when we understand that hell is hot and forever is long, and when I come to the fact that I turned my back on God and I deserved all the wrath, and I am a sinner by nature and by choice, and I realized that if Adam had not taken that fruit, that I would have taken it. When I remember that I have lived selfishly and I have compromised, I have lusted, I have strayed in a thousand ways, and yet, while I was still in my sin, Jesus loved me. He so lavishly that he died for me. The perfect one gave his life for a sinner like me. He who knew no sin became my sins so that I may become the righteousness of God. And you think about that and you're like, are you kidding me? Are you serious? When you, when you see Jesus and what he has done for you, you will learn that no worship, no praise, no sacrifice, no devotion is too much. He is worthy of our whole life. Every moment, every dollar, every word, every thought. And I just want to say this. To those of you who are wholeheartedly worshiping Jesus, the best that you know how and with what you have, I want you to hear clearly the words of Jesus in verse 6 when he said, you have done a beautiful thing to me. Some of you are here and you're wondering, is anybody noticing me? Like, is anybody noticing my prayers? Is anybody noticing the money I give? everything that I'm doing, Jesus is saying in verse 6, I see you. And it does mean something, what you have done for me. It is beautiful to me. And so Edge City Church, Jesus sees your devotion. Jesus, he, he doesn't see it as wasteful. He sees it as beautiful. The time that you have spent praying for somebody, it's not a waste of time. Coming to church every Sunday is not a waste of your weekend. Your financial offerings are not a waste of your money. Your hospitality and the mission and the evangelism, it is not a waste of your energy. 
Others may criticize you and say, don't get carried away. Jesus smiles over you and he says, you have done a beautiful thing. And I got to say this before I end. Those of you who are on the fence, your toe is in the water with Jesus. Right? You're still sort of kind of like stiff arming him from afar. Right? These uncomfortable places of your life and you just don't want him to come in because you still view Jesus as a threat. My, my prayer for you is that you would see his beauty, that you would see his worth, that you too would earnestly come in terms with this incredibly lavish love and sacrifice that he's so freely given to you in the gospel. And that would so well up this little insanity in your heart that you would surrender every area of your life, that you would give them all your whole and respond. Thank you, God. Let's pray. Jesus, no one loves you, Lord Father. No one loves more than you, God. Lord, no one gives like you, God. No one sacrifices like you have sacrificed, oh God. You gave your all when we had nothing to offer in return. I mean, what a picture of love, Lord. And God, we see this dear woman, Mary, someone who understands your beauty, someone who sees your worth, and she gives you her very all. Oh God, help us to do that also. Give us eyes to see your greatness and hearts that want to sacrifice our all for you and respond in that way. As we respond to you right now in worship, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name.